Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. All righty. How are you on this Sunday? Oh, this Sunday is all right. I have a feeling that very soon my bedroom is going to be hotter than Satan's butthole, but we'll see what I happens. Turned on, I turned on the AC before we started recording because I was like, it was already like 83 degrees inside my house. Yeah. And it's still morning. I mean, it's early afternoon now, but it's well, going to just get hotter. You have central air, though, right? Yeah. Okay. See, we have air in our living room that barely hits the kitchen and doesn't reach the bedroom or bathroom at all. So we have like a tiny like heater, a space heater that also has a fan in it. And that's all we have in our bedroom right now. And we didn't want to have our windows open last night because of the fireworks, which, by the way, we're going off until 5 a.m., yeah, I knew because I went to sleep at like one thirty, uh-huh. and they were still going like they were going so loud that they actually woke me up at almost two o'clock. It was insane. Yeah. I don't know why fireworks this year were so just off the wall. Oh, I, I don't understand. I woke up at about three in the morning and couldn't fall back to sleep until about five. I heard fireworks sporadically between those hours I'm like five in the morning yeah I mean and people were setting them off like we went for a walk last night uh and people were setting them off from their balconies from their roofs of apartment complexes and I'm like well that's not safe yeah well Uh, and and the other thing that's just really frustrating to me is especially as a dog owner and I'm sure any listeners that are dog owners totally get this but it's like It's such a hard time for them. Like my girls are really good inside, but it's really hard for them going outside. They get really, really scared. And it's just one of those things where it's like, yes, have your fireworks if that's what makes you happy. But like be respectful. Stop them after the 4th of July. Don't do them at crazy hours because really like Penny was getting up and down too because she kept hearing noises and she's very much a protector that makes her scared. Well, and people who have PTSD as well. Like I know a lot of people. uh, I have two friends, close friends of mine who spent some time overseas and have pretty severe PTSD to the point where they don't go to um, fireworks shows. But to have fireworks being set off so close to your home at all hours of the night um, is... Just, I don't know, really inconsiderate. Maybe I'm just like an old curmudgeon lady now, but that's kind of how I'm feeling. That's also, totally this, how I feel. This 4th of July was just super bizarre anyway. Yeah. We didn't I, do anything. Yeah, we, we grilled, but we had it under the context of we are grilling because it is a nice day and it's a Saturday. And we always get together with those people that we get that we got together with on Saturday. Katie and Caitlin and Ricky often come over that day anyways. So we just kind of decided we weren't going to we had a lot of other discussions we talked about the day and things like that and why we're not celebrating I worked for a few hours in the morning and kind of had a chat with T about that as well and just you know it's another opportunity for us to educate ourselves especially you know Keegan and I were just talking about me finally seeing Hamilton before this and I think that that is a big reminder of just how fucked the founding of our country was 
and that if you don't really know how far back this shit goes, you need to do more research. You know what I mean? There's so many people that don't know. And that's why they see so, how you don't know or like or just, I guess, don't care. I don't know. Yeah, they don't care because yeah. I, I don't see how you don't know. I mean, even with the largely European focused, um, very white supremacist, white superiority kind of focused education that we received, even the little bit that we did receive that talked about the fucked upness of the founding of our country, like should have been enough for you to know that like some shit was wrecked. But man. I don't know, because that was not my uh, impression as a child learning about the founding of our country to me they were always placed as these heroes i don't remember learning I think in- hamilton still places them as heroes oh totally i think there is i was actually saying gonna tell you later that i was reading some articles about like whether or not it's helpful or not for our country to be seeing hamilton right now um but yeah i don't remember i remember reading about thomas jefferson having slaves but i don't remember it being like taught as this horrible thing or how many or what he like it was just one of those things that was taught and it was just kind of like oh well that's how it was back then that was kind of the impression that I had as a child from how it was taught to me yes you know what I mean so I think that's kind of what I mean where people don't know where it's like they know but I think that there's also this idea is because we were taught like systemic racism goes so far back that we are taught that slavery wasn't that bad We were taught that, like, you know, it was so long ago, you know, everyone should just get over it. Like, those were things that, like, I heard a lot repeated, like, in the 90s, you know? Yes. So it is, you know, for me, it's stuff that I already knew. But it was a good day for me to focus more on education, uh, moving forward with learning things that I didn't already know about. And, yeah, fuck your 4th of July. (laughs) Yeah, we're just not in a place right now, for me anyway, like I'm not in a place right now where I felt like I could celebrate it in a way that was respectful. Um, So moving forward, we'll see what future years bring as far as that goes. Well, what I said uh, yesterday when I was at work, I just said that I I already celebrated on Juneteenth, so I'm okay. You know, I, I put my support in that day and I've chosen not to put my support in the 4th of July. I mean, I think at some point, there will become a balance between being able to respectfully recognize our independence from Britain there should be, and yeah. what what that means mm-hmm. uh, and what's come out of it because it's part of the history of our nation. Of and course. I think that that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. Um, but just where I'm at right now and the way that I'm viewing my country, I, I don't think I'm being unpatriotic by wanting it to do better. I agree. And that's kind of where I'm at. I totally agree. Uh, well, good. I'm glad we had that that conversation. I know the 4th of July has been a few days for you guys now that you are listening to this episode. Uh, but we are going to do another Forgotten Feminist Favorite. Yes. Hey. Hey, hey. So Keegan is going to start us off today. Do you want yes. to get us going? Yes. Okay. So I am going to talk about somebody who I did not know about until incredibly recently. Um, Again, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about our education system, and I'm sure that this is true in some ways for anywhere that you're from. I'm sure that your education focuses mostly on your country and doesn't look a lot at world history or things that went on unless they were directly related to things that happened within your country. So... I know that as I was getting older, 
having this understanding that like black people are everywhere in the Americas, in South America, Central America, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of having that realization whenever as I was growing up was kind of like a revelation to me. And then having the understanding of why that was and how the um, transatlantic uh, slave trade brought in so many slaves to Central and South America uh, and throughout the Caribbean. So I learned about this woman and there isn't a whole lot of information about her, like really at all. It was very, very difficult for me to find really any solid information. And a lot of these articles and um, I even went to YouTube to try and watch videos, but they're all in like French. So it was really hard for me to try and like put something together. So keep that in mind as we go through this story that a lot of this stuff at this point has become almost legendary, like legend status. And so I tried to find as many facts as possible, but it's probably not going to be perfect. Okay. I'm not a historian. Okay. (laughs) So I am going to be talking about uh, Solitude of Guadalupe. So She's often called, and there is a very famous statue, and it's actually a picture of that statue that was the first thing I ever saw in relation to this woman. And the statue is called La Moulatresse Solitude, and that is kind of her name, but I don't really want to call her by that, so I'm going to refer to her as Solitude throughout this story, because La Moulatresse, which is her name, means female mulatto, which is a degrading term uh, for somebody who is half black and half white. And from, I I didn't know that, I I was called mulatto a lot growing up, and I didn't realize how offensive or why that that, that term is offensive. That was a really, uh, when I was growing up, I remember even having that be the term to describe a mixed race person like even like my mixed ma- my mixed race friends would at times refer to themselves as yes. that and oh, yes. i remember i believe i remember even being taught by adults that like that's just what it was we didn't really realize right. at that time that it was degrading and dehumanizing Yes. Yeah. And uh, same. I definitely have referred to myself that way in the past. Uh, But when you study kind of the origins of that word and where it comes from. So mulatto is basically a word that's used to talk about mules, um, to refer to mules. And mules are half donkey, half horse. So they're basically saying you're half of this thing, you're half of that thing. and that makes you a mulatto, a mule. Well, that also um, is very, to me, that's degrading to be compared to like an a donkey animal. and a mule. Yeah, that to, yeah. that's where the dehumanizing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nature of that word, I feel, really comes from when you hear. Yes. When I heard that, I was just kind of like, that's icky. I don't like it. Yeah, gross. Um, so, okay. So, Solitude was born on the island of Guadeloupe. So, when I read this, it looks like Guadalupe to me. Uh, it's spelled like Guadalupe. But when I listened to the French Creole pronunciation of the island, um, they pronounce it Guadeloupe. So that's how I will pronounce it. All right. And it is an island in the Caribbean that was then and is currently occupied by France. So around she was born around 1772. Her mother was an enslaved woman from Africa. And her father was a sailor on the ship that brought her mother over 
uh, to Guadeloupe who had raped her mother uh, on the journey from Africa to the West Indies. Oh. Yeah, really not not, not great. A good start it's upsetting to this story. And especially since you know how traumatic those passages were already, mm-hmm. um, just to know that her mother was raped on on this ship on her way over and became pregnant with her. So like I said, she was called La Malatresse, which means female uh, mulatto. And this was kind of important to her origin because it, as we discussed in our colorism episode, her being of like lighter skin and slightly more European features than a lot of the other uh, African enslaved people who were brought over to the Caribbean gave her a different kind of status as a domestic worker. So she, instead of working out in the fields, worked inside uh, inside the house. So let's talk a little bit about Guadeloupe for just a kind of a reference point before we move on. So the history of colonization in Guadeloupe is a major bummer, just to say the least. So awesome. Christopher Christopher Columbus was the first European to set foot on the island that we know of. Uh, but the indigenous people, to their credit, man, they put up such a fight that the Spanish were basically run off. Like they tried to colonize <laughs> Guadeloupe and they the indigenous people were like, absolutely not. They're not like, today. we can't do it. We cannot yeah. colonize these people. Yeah. So they're like, you know what? We'll come back later. Bye. Bye. So... Later on, the French tried again and were more successful in colonizing this area. And it did lead to widespread deaths of the native people due to disease and violence. So the French wanted to set up um, plantation agriculture on the islands. And the first African slaves were brought over in 1650. Institutionalized slavery was enforced by a thing called Code Noir in 1685, and it led to a booming sugar plantation economy. This economy was massive. So there was a treat, like for a very small period of time, England took over for a little bit, and then the French got it back in um, 1763 after the Treaty of Paris. And after that happened, about 18,000 slaves were imported from Guadeloupe one of which was Solitude and her mother. And this area was so prosperous due to like sugar and coffee um, exportation that in um, under that Treaty of Paris, France actually forfeited its uh, Canadian colonies in exchange for Guadeloupe because Guadeloupe made so much money. Wow. It was economically just such a huge booming area. Um, in 1789, the French Revolution brought chaos to Guadeloupe and under new revolutionary law, free people of color um, were entitled to equal rights and slavery was abolished in 1794. So at this point, like they stepped in during the revolution um, and they were like, you know what, we're going to set all of these black people free, all of these African slaves, we're going to set them free. In 1790? In 1794. Wow, they were way ahead of us. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Almost everyone was. Yeah, Let's yeah. be real. Let's be real. So seeing slavery abolished, Solitude went to live in a maroon community on the island. And these communities um, were for Africans in the Americas who formed their own kind of co- communities, basically, like their own settlements. Right. And we see kind of a similar thing in like Louisiana, 
you see these kind of like thriving free African communities. Right. Kind of setting uh, very, up setting up their own kind of economies and businesses and things like that, much like mm-hmm. the um why am I blanking on the massacre of uh Oh Black Wall Street? Black Wall Street, of course. Yes. yes yeah, but similar- this was well, well before that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this was kind of like, it, the best example I can think of in the United States is, are in areas like New Orleans, where they had, like, they created their own Creole cultures. And very often, they would mix, you know, the Africans in the Americas would mix with indigenous peoples in the area, and they kind of separated off and lived together. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yeah. Um, But... There's very little that's known about Solitude's life at this time, but most people assume that she lived in relative happiness in the Maroon settlement of um, La Goyave. I'm going to say that that's how you pronounce that. And she was free from slavery for the first time in her whole life. But this was really short-lived because in 1802, Napoleon Bonaparte enacted the law of May 20th, 1802, which reinstated slavery in the French colonies because they wanted to resurrect the sugar-based economies by re-enslaving freed people um, who had been living as French citizens for eight years. So imagine, yeah, I mean, imagine that. It's like you are finally free. You were born into slavery, but you are free and you have been free for nearly a decade. Right. You built a life for yourself. You're used Mm -hmm. to this. And now you're being told, nope, we're sorry. You have to go back to the other way of life that really sucked for you. Right. Yes. Because we need to make more money. Exactly. Yeah. So at this time, there was a man named Louis Delgray who, or maybe it's Delgras, not sure, uh, who was born a free biracial man who had fought against the British during the French Revolution in Guadeloupe and formed a resistance movement to fight against uh, this new law that was trying to re-enslave freed people. And he was really fighting for freedom for all African Guadeloupians. So the formerly enslaved were determined to maintain their freedom, and they essentially created rebel militias to fight back against the French. Wow. Uh, the Maroon communities became kind of like base camps. So there were like these fully you know, black and brown communities that were forming armies of their own rebel armies to fight against the French. Um, Solitude quickly became a leader in La Goyave. And when French, uh, when a French general attacked that settlement, she led a small group of rebels into the hills of Guadeloupe, eluding capture. So she took a group of people from her settlement. They went into the mountains and basically just like hid in the mountains for a while and trained in the mountains. So, And she was in charge of this group? Yes. That's impressive. She was in charge. Yes. Yeah. And it's actually really interesting. Again, there's not a whole lot to read about it, but it is interesting to see how the women of this movement of this resistance were very active actually they took a very active role and um louis del gras or del gray he is the person who kind of came out of this as like the hero and for obvious reasons that like i'll get into later but i do also think it's because he was a man and he was a military you know man and it just was the kind of narrative that people wanted to hear right. about the, at that the time. appearance was probably easier for people to take in especially as was this a biracial man 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's horrible, but, you know, having yeah. even just a man in general, whether the race or not, it made people more right. comfortable knowing that a man was in charge, you know? Right. Yeah. And a, a mixed race man who was born free as well, you know? So it's right. a, just a very different kind of narrative. But um, on May 5th, 1802, French ships arrived in Pointe-à-Pitre carrying troops ready to enforce Napoleon's decree to reinstate slavery. And so battles kind of erupted all over Guadeloupe. Everybody, all the Africans and their descendants were fighting to preserve their freedom. So they were basically in a full-on war with a massive military force, the French. Right, with an organized, very powerful military force, I would say. So that's a lot to go up against. Right. I mean, in a lot of these people, you have to imagine that guns were very difficult to come by. It's not as though they left their enslavement, you know, well armed or anything like that. So Solitude at this point is three months pregnant and she mobilized her followers to join the forces of Louis Del Grey uh, against the French military. So during the battles, women were said to have fought just as fiercely and as bravely as the men, with Solitude being particularly fearless. See, this uh, is why you just need to let women get it done. Just let the honestly. women get it done. Because, you know, while you're sitting and you're trying to figure it out, we're out there getting shit done. Yeah, finishing pregnant. it off. Pregnant. Also, what's up? You know, <laughs> or in heels. What? What have you? Whatever it yeah, may be. I mean, <laughs> and this story, I was going to save it for the end, but I think it's an important conversation for us to have. Is that like I think very often, and it's been a criticism as well with kind of modern day civil rights movements. It was a criticism that we had, um, and that many historians have had about the Black Panthers. Is kind of pushing black women to the side even though black women do so much of the actual work like they do so much of the actual labor exactly and they end up being pushed aside more often than not for their black counterparts uh, a male counterparts and very often by their black male counterparts yeah you know um even now today like black lives matter was founded by a woman yes <laughs> you know? exactly um, so it's just kind of an interesting thing to take a look at. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is something that I think we've we've definitely touched on through many episodes in the past, discussing just the different uh, ideas from all of these past women that we've discussed that are then taken on by men, where they actually right. get you know finished or completed because a man's voice needed to be the one to convey the message. Yep. Yep. Um, so the French army eventually drove Del Grey. Solitude and the other rebels into Fort St. Charles, which was held by formerly enslaved Guadalupians. And after realizing that they were surrounded and outnumbered, Del Grey knew that they were not going to prevail, but he refused to surrender. So the rebels decided to make one final stand. And at the Battle of Matuba on the 28th of May, 1802, they allowed the French to advance into their territory. They were basically like, yeah, come on, come on, come on, come on. And once they were close, the rebels ignited stores of gunpowder. So they ended up killing themselves like in this massive su- this, like strategic suicide plan. Um, and But it resulted in the death of approximately 400 French soldiers. They managed to get like 400 French soldiers close enough and then lit a bomb. Holy basically. shit. 
Mm-hmm. Where's this movie, Keegan? We're adding this. I know. We're adding this to the movies that we're making. <laughs> I know. We got to start a list. I got to go through the old episodes because we've said this so many times. But holy shit. I know. It's dope. crazy. And that's part of why he is held as a hero. Like, look, I'm not trying to take that away from him because it's it was such an incredible, like, revolutionary act. What like, a they fucking were like, message. Yeah, they were like, we don't care if we die, we're going to fuck it up. Here we go. Yeah, so we just, most of them, it doesn't matter that we die. We don't want you here. We don't, you know, yeah. we'll die right along with you. We just want you to get out. That's fucking right. brave. And it's possible as well that because this was being enacted not just in Guadeloupe, but also in um, Haiti, like what we consider to be modern day Haiti as well. And there were revolutions or um, battles that were successful in on other islands. You know what I mean? It just wasn't successful on Guadeloupe. But who's to say that them having done this, taking out 400 French troops, they probably did help I was going to say liberate other people. That doesn't sound unsuccessful to me. That sounds like a unconventional way to lead to success, because typically when we think of success, when it comes to war and battle, that would be the people who are left alive. Those were the people that succeeded. But I think that in many ways, that still sounds like a success to me. Right. It may be a a successful battle, but unfortunately the war for Guadalupe, basically, um, in, in that way, they did fail. So kind of a spoiler alert. They did fail. Oh. It ended up being a situation where uh, slavery was reinstated uh, on Guadeloupe. They they just couldn't. They didn't have the numbers or the men or the arm, you know, the firepower so, to go up against this army. So did Solitude have to become a slave again? So, okay. So most of the Maroons died during this attack. Most of them died, but Solitude did survive, and she was captured and detained uh, to a base terror prison. I think that's how you say that. Probably not. Actually, almost definitely not. But anyway, so throughout her imprisonment, Solitude remained fiercely resistant. There was only one, I think there's only one actual historical document that names Solitude by name. Uh, and it was written by a man named Auguste Lacour in History uh, de la Guadeloupe. And it's, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It was clearly written by an enemy. Very often, whenever you study like women in history, especially powerful women, especially women who are like not here to put up with your bullshit, mm-hmm. um, the men write it in such a way as to depict this person as being um, monstrous yeah. in some way. Yeah. You know Un- what I mean? Unhinged, painting unhinged. them in a picture yes. of you know being irrational and uh, hysterical. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So some of the lines from his uh, his document say, La maletresse solitude, who came to Pointe-à-Pitre uh, to base terror, terror, was then in the Palermo camp. She let her hatred and fury burst out at all occasions. And he tells a story about her basically running and catching a rabbit uh, and killing the rabbit and and saying, lifting it up and presenting it to the other women at the prison uh, and saying, and he writes, by mixing her words with the most offensive epithets, this is how I will treat you when it is time. Like basically, like she was like, I'll ruin your life, like to to the guards and to like all these other men. Like you see this rabbit, I will right. do this what, what I I'll did do to you. to you. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And that's the other thing that you know when we read 
those accounts, it's always funny because they think that they are displaying the women in such an ugly way. But now hundreds of years later, we're reading it and we're like, hell yeah, she did. Yes, yeah, she did. Badass bitch. You know, it's like, yes. so his, his intent was not successful years later. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. And to go on with that, he says, and this unfortunate woman was about to become a mother, exclamation point. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> Scandalous. Um, and then he says, Solitude did not abandon the rebels and remained close to them like their evil genius to excite them to the greatest crimes. Love it. Yes, and again, she when did. Yes, she did. When he's saying that, he, it's the crime of wanting to be free. So we're supposed to look at this as though, like, can you imagine what an uncivilized, horrifying person, criminal, inciting these women to criminal acts, the criminal act of fighting for your own freedom? Can you imagine? (laughs) So rude. I mean, and the freedom for her child. Like, he says this, like, she's, she's, can you believe she's pregnant? She's about to become a mother. And she's using foul language. So maybe you should let her go. Maybe you should allow everybody to be free. You know, especially with the way, like, that story is just so interesting because of how she came into the world and now how she is, you know, ending this battle. It's like this full circle moment where, you know, her mother was raped and, you know, she gave birth to Solitude on her way to Guadalupe. And now Guadalupe is, or sorry, and now Solitude is imprisoned and pregnant. It just seems to me this very yeah. eerie mm-hmm. full circle moment of this need and this motherly probably like uh, protection that she's feeling that's probably making her even more angry and being like, I don't want this life for myself or for the future. Right. You know, I'm right. sure I, that I was think- inspiring to her. I think we've been conditioned to believe that pregnancy is like weakness, like pregnant women are weaker right? Um, because physically, yes, they're like tired. They're creating a human. I understand all of those things uh, and that pregnant people need to be handled with care. But also, I can't think of anything that would make me want to fight for freedom more than wanting to ensure that my child was born free exactly. and could live free. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly, yes. Um, So the French military brought Solitude and the other survivors before the military tribunal, which sentenced them all to death. But Solitude was temporarily pardoned until she gave birth to her child, who would become legal property of her former master. So not great. One day, so she gives birth to her baby, and the next morning, on November 28th, 1802, Solitude is taken from her cell. She still um, is said to have had maternity milk staining her nightdress, because she had literally just given birth, Uh, and she was executed by hanging at the age of 30 years old. Her last words were said to have been, live free or die. So she became an instant martyr and a symbol of female resistance and motherhood all throughout the area. But she was largely forgotten to time. Again, there were only like these legends of her. uh, And then there were only very short passages kind of in passing, mentioning her by name or things that we can assume now 
are talking about her, but don't mention her by name. Right. So she was lost largely to time. And even after Louis Del Grey was kind of um, ep- upheld as a hero in the area and there were statues going up for him, there was really nothing for a long time to commemorate this woman. But in 1999... A statue representing her and whose features were made by a um, sculptor named Jackie Pollier was put up. And this is the statue that you can find. So it's there are two statues. There was another one that was created in 2007. But the one that was created in uh, 1999 is it's so incredible because it's this woman with this giant pregnant belly with her arms her hands on her hips and she's just looking incredibly defiant yeah Uh, and this conversation kind of was revived because people were talking about of course like removing monuments removing statues and people are pointing to like this statue and being like why don't we have statues like this exactly why don't we have statues commemorating this incredibly brave amazing fierce warrior who fought for her freedom yes well, and like, I mean, sorry that I didn't even say anything. I was completely speechless at the story of her execution. That is absolutely disgusting that you would take a mother away from their child the day after giving birth, execute them, and then the son was ensla- was enslaved. It's just uh, makes me very angry. Yeah, and sad. I don't. I don't know if she had a son or daughter. I can't. I didn't. Oh, find I don't that know why I assumed it was a son. I'm sorry. That's really sexist of me. <laughs> I just don't know. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't find that information anywhere. Well, I'm sure it's that the baby. Well, yeah, there's I'm sure there was no information because it was it was her baby. It was, you know, a what I would assume to be another biracial child that probably didn't mean as much to them as a white baby would be, you know? Uh, right. Well, I mean, it became the baby went on to become a slave. Yeah, exactly. Which is a really depressing end. Um, but here we are. But here we are. So the statue that went up in 2007 was in a place called Bagnau, and it was part of the commemorations of the abolition of slavery and the slave trade. So there were a lot of commemorations that went up kind of very recently in the last 20 years wow. to commemorate. Because, again, we think about the African slave trade in a very American or, or United States-centered way, which makes sense because that's where we're from. But if you take a look at the slave trade that went into the Caribbean, it's it, it, there were way more <laughs> slaves brought from Africa to work in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Very much anyway. so. Yeah, it's good. It's important for us to look about other countries, look into other countries where they were affected as well. Sorry, I was Googling uh, images of Solitude and this sketch of her Wow. Oh, yeah. Yes. And that's the um, and that's the statue. That's a sketch from the statue. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Oh, my God. She's she looks like Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> she's beautiful. And who knows what she actually right, looks like. Course. But um, it's still an incredibly powerful image. Oh, it's beautiful. It's very, very powerful. And I do recognize it now that I've now that I'm looking at pictures of it. Today, Solitude's name adorns squares, avenues, a library and a museum room in Guadeloupe. And um, her bravery and courage is actually remembered in songs, poems, and there is a musical called um, Solitude La Marone in there in Guadeloupe that, you know, so, so yeah. it's probably I think it's a French I was going to say, would it be in French then? 
I believe so. Yeah, I think it's a French musical. But yeah, she's finally, finally gotten kind of like the recognition that Good. she deserves. I wish we knew more about her. I know this was kind of a short one just because mine is actually there wasn't a lot. Yeah, mine is actually quite short, too. Um, but thank you so much for sharing that story. I did not know that at all before. I knew nothing yes. of her. So thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> like I said, mine is also going to be a bit shorter. Uh, I also had an issue this morning where I lost my notes. I, I hand wrote my notes this week while I was at work. And I don't know where I put them. So I had to kind of just go through all the other websites that I went through and quickly type up my notes. But here we go. I am going to be talking today about Stormy Delavery. Okay. Before I get started, I want to discuss the topic of pronouns when it comes to Stormy, because there are some websites that use the pronouns she and her, and that's most of the websites. And there are some, including the the official Stonewall Veterans page, refers to Stormy as a he. But I was reading an article in the Harper's Bazaar where they're saying that a lot of these um, historians are kind of placing pronouns upon Stormy that she always referred to herself as a woman that she used she and her pronouns so I am going to be using she and her pronouns because in most of the evidence that I saw her friends and family and the people closest to her referred to her as a she and said that that was how she identified herself so okay I don't know if I'm right I could be totally fucking this up but that is that seems to be what she would be remembered by I don't know So if this name does not ring a bell to you, it definitely should because she is known as being the person to throw the first punch at the Stonewall Uprising. So, yeah, so I'm going to get a bit into the Stonewall story in a little bit because it isn't like definite that it's her, but there's a lot of things to uh support it and things like that. So let's just kind of talk about who Stormy is. She was born in New Orleans in 1920. She had a white father and a black mother. And because of this, she was never issued a birth certificate. So she doesn't know her exact birthday, but she would celebrate it on Christmas Eve on December 24th. Wow, that seems insane to me that you could be born in 1920 and not know your birthday. Well, yeah, I mean, it was because she was born in New Orleans and had a white father and a black mother. And I'm sure... That, I mean, at that time, the marriage wouldn't have been legal. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that go into it, which, I mean, were obviously unfair and not right, but I'm sure there are a lot of, like, you know, awful laws at that time that kept her from having an official birth certificate. Um, And, you know, being biracial was really the biggest struggle of her young life. She was bullied horribly and harassed and attacked as a child at school for being biracial. One incident left her in a leg brace. Another left her with a scar from being hung from a fence. Like just awful, awful, awful bullying. And so after that incident happened with the scar and the fence, the her father finally agreed to send her away to private school for her own safety. Uh, when she was a teenager, she spent lots of time with the Ringling Brothers Circus. She would uh, ride jumping horses side saddle. Storm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Pretty cool, right? So she... It would be hard. It would be very hard. Yeah. She was like... 
I didn't read this a lot in what I'd read, but she definitely sounded like a risk taker and a tomboy. And as you learn more about her life, definitely like not afraid of anything, like just very, very fearless. Um, So she discovered that she was gay when she was 18 and decided to move to Chicago because she feared that she would be murdered if she stayed in the South. Uh, So she lived in Chicago for a while and she began a career as a singer under the name Stormy Dale and she was dressed as a woman. But in 1946, uh, she went to visit Danny Brown and Doc Brenner in Miami, and they were the owners of Danny's Jewel Box, which would later become the Jewel Box review that Stormy would be the MC for and Drag King for. Uh, but they wanted her to help them with their upcoming show, and they created this role for her. And... Um, it was kind of an interesting show idea. Now it would be incredibly degrading. Um, but at the time, I think they liked to poke fun at straight people. So it was called something like 12 Women, One Men, One Man. It was something like that. I couldn't find the name again this morning when I was redoing my notes. So essentially, uh, there were male drag queens dressed in like long glittering gowns and very beautiful. And then Stormy would come out dressed in like zoot suits or tuxedos, like perfect male attire. And she passed. She would pass to the entire audience. And there was a song. It was called some like surprise song or the surprise at the end or something. And that's when she would reveal that the whole time everybody's like, okay, which one's the real woman? Which one's the real woman? She would reveal that the whole time it was her. And everyone in the audience would be like, what? Because they were looking for the at the drag queens. And, you know, so that was kind of her like shtick. Uh, And she said that she would travel with them for like six months. Well, she ended up being with them for 14 years. Um, Wow. Yeah. She was a baritone singer, which is damn I wish I could hit that low what yeah like that's wild they they say she had a a silvery baritone jazz tone so I'm like all right she was also very tall dark androgynous and handsome which I'm like okay up uh Although she was taken through most of her life. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of information about her girlfriend, Diana, but they were together for like 25 years. So when talking about the show, Stormy would later say, it was very easy. All I had to do was be me and let people use their imaginations. It never changed me. I was still a woman. She also once said, and the strange thing is, I never moved any differently than I did when I was wearing women's clothes. The audience only saw what they wanted to see, and they believed what they wanted to believe. And she was an absolute hit. Like, she became friends with Dinah Washington and Billy fucking Holiday. Like, she, oh, wow. her voice and her performances became, like, huge and groundbreaking. And not only her performances, but her style. Because not only was she a drag king on stage, but she took that same style into her daily life. Like she wore uh, mostly men's clothing and they say that it was Stormy's style that influenced the other lesbians in New York City to start, you know, wearing men's clothing and experimenting with their styles, just going out and about and going to clubs and things like that. So like most people living in the village of New York City, the Stonewall Inn was a very popular bar to attend. So Stonewall for a bit of history we have we do have an entire Stonewall episode I believe so you we do yes, yes. we do I was like I believe I'm remembering we did something like that uh, where we can go into more detail about how it was started but there is a funny little connection because Stonewall was started by the mafia and Stormy 
was a uh, when she was young, she worked with the mafia as their personal security. And that's where she got most of her style influence. Which is also crazy. Yeah. So she was that they would hire her to work security. So she had license to carry. She was tall and intimidating. Like she looked like she was a very popular bodyguard and security guard. And so they say that, you know, she had this very mafia style and Stonewall was run by the mafia. And I think that's just kind of like a fun um, connection. So as we yeah. as we know, on the very, very late hours of June 28th, 1969, uh, police raided the Stonewall Inn and a scuffle broke out. And this scuffle broke out when a fight between a cop and a person described as a, quote, butch lesbian was handcuffed as they tried to escort her to a wagon. A cop had told her to move along, F word, that's not fuck, because he thought mm. she was a man. They were really, really rough with her, and they actually had to escort her multiple times as she kept getting away, and they always caught up with her. Uh, They say that she fought at least four cops, swearing and yelling for 10 minutes until they finally took a baton and beat her in the head. And as she's bleeding, they're picking her up and they're heaving her into the wagon, and she just screams, why don't you guys do something? And that Mm -hmm. was when the crowd went berserk. So I just got goosebumps when I said that. Um, Like, so they say that, you know, she wasn't the one that threw the first brick or anything like that. But she was the one that threw the biggest fit when being taken into this car. And she sounds like she was kind of the catalyst. She gave everybody permission to act, I think, is what that was like by by requesting that they do something. She's giving them permission to act. Exactly. You know, it's funny. They actually many refer to her as uh, the gay community is Rosa Parks. You know, it's kind of that permission. If I if I can do this. You can do this too. We're stronger in numbers, things like that. Right. Yeah. I I love, you know, I actually think that there's some parallels actually between your story and mine, even though they're separated by centuries. I was thinking the same thing. Um, but it, it is true where it's just like, you know what? There's a lot of us. There's power in numbers. We can we can fight back. We can overwhelm them. We can do it. You yeah, know? and Stormy was the perfect person to do it because she had this background of being tough and respected and also kind of like having this almost like respect as a man like even from these cops that treated her you know like a man where I think that she very much uh, harnessed that power that she knew that she had and really used this through her whole life and this was a huge moment for her because her life would stop being about you know performances and it would really become all about her activism. Um, So like I said, we don't really know for sure that it was Stormy, but her friend, who was also the owner of the village lesbian bar, Henrietta Hudson, said, nobody knows who threw the first punch, but it's rumored that she did. And she said she did. She told me she did. And (laughs) yeah, they and all accounts agree that there were several, quote, cross-dressing lesbians who fought against the police during that uprising and that she was one of them. So there are a lot of facts that support this. Yeah, and she seems like the type of person who wouldn't have shied away from throwing no, the first punch. Not you know at what I mean? All. Like it seems like it was kind of in her character to have done something like that. I think it was fate that she was there that night. I really do. Mm-hmm. I think it was fate that she uh that her anger was was present that night. You know what I mean? It it, it changed a lot of lives. 
Um, so that's really, you know, when you Google her, that's the first thing that shows up is what she did at Stonewall. But it's really what she did with the rest of her life that was really so astonishing, her lasting impact. Unfortunately, her girlfriend, Diana, who was a dancer, passed away very shortly after Stonewall, after Stonewall, I believe the next year. They were together for 25 years. Wow. And she was still fairly young, oh. too. So if she was born in 1920, this happened in 69. Yeah. So, so she's 48 or some, around or there. Yeah. And so she's spent most of her life with this woman and this woman passed away. And they say that she would never really move on. She kept a photo of Diana with her at all times until she died. She always uh, loved Diana. And I tried Googling her specifically, learning more about her. But really, all the references to her went back to Stormy. So I don't really have yeah. more information. But uh, it was something that was also, I think, um, motivation for Stormy to continue with her activism to make the lives of her lesbian community better. Um, after Stonewall, she stopped performing, like I said, although she would still do performances for charity events and fundraisers, especially for victims of violence and domestic abuse. Uh, but then she went back to being a bodyguard and she was also a bouncer and she kind of became a sort of lone ranger for young lesbians throughout the city. So she, like I said, she was armed. And she would like stroll the streets of the village and pop into lesbian bars and make sure that her girls were okay. Uh, <laughs> it says she would check in on lesbian bars throughout the village vigilante style since she had a license to carry. She had no tolerance for what she called ugly behavior, which means rudeness, bullying or any other behavior seen as intolerant toward her quote baby girls. Uh, oh, she's, she's a mom. She's a mom. Yeah, for real. And it's funny. She didn't like being referred to as a bodyguard. She preferred being called babysitter of my people, all the boys and girls. So she, Aww. yeah, she was like this vigilante, like neighborhood watch, lone ranger kind of style uh, babysitter, bodyguard, whatever you want to call her. And she also worked as a bouncer at the Cubbyhole and Henrietta Hudson until she was 85 years old when she finally retired that's wild she and until she was 85 she was still going in the streets too that's yeah, wild she was known to just kind of being like i mean you could also i guess kind of compare her to robin hood in a way she's protecting her people against you know well she found her mission yeah. right like that was her and maybe stonewall was the catalyst for her it definitely was uh, she was actually a founding member of the Stonewall Veterans Association she has held office as chief of security ambassador and vice president in 2000 Stormy received the gay lifetime achievement award from the senior action in a gay environment she was also a staple in the annual pride parade she would drive down in a 1969 big blue convertible known as a Stonewall car but Stormy called it Stormy's baby <laughs> in later years, she unfortunately suffered from dementia and from the years 2010 to 2014, she lived in a nursing home in Brooklyn. And although she really didn't have uh, any, you know, short term memory, her memories of her childhood and of Stonewall were always very, very clear, they said, up until she died. And she passed away in her sleep on May 24th, 2014 in Brooklyn. Unfortunately, no immediate family was alive at the time of her death. But a lot of her friends were alive and the people that she took care of and things like that were able to give her a funeral and honor her. I believe it was like on May 29th, they had a funeral uh, to honor all of the wonderful things that she did for their community, which in a way I think is probably her true family, it sounds like, you know, yeah. and that's how she would have wanted it. 
So that's Stormy Delabry. Wow, what an amazing story. Yeah, I'm sorry. I wish it was I wish it was longer and I had more, but all my websites are pretty much giving me the same stuff. So there's your yeah, quick Yeah, I know. Rundown. You know, we've said it before doing these forgotten feminist favorites where it's like we do the best that we can do, but also know that especially the more forgotten they are, the more difficult it is going to be for us to find information right, on exactly. them. Exactly. And define, you know, there's a wealth of and define like legit information you know because of course everybody right, yeah, has theories. It becomes very difficult especially like again with my story the further back you go uh, and the longer the period of time between the events happened and things were actually written down and recorded it's like a game of telephone like the facts will start to change well, especially for um, the black community when there wasn't I mean with the history being wiped out like Max can like he knows like generals that he was related to during you know at like revolutionary times things like that where you know black enslaved people don't have that luxury so also in Solitude's case you know they they wouldn't have anything really written down here it would probably be mostly word of mouth anyways. You know? Right. And a lot of what is recorded is not going to be complimentary because that's not how they wanted her to be viewed or perceived. I mean, I, so, I would disagree. I, I think that was totally complimentary. I think I think that was a <laughs> wonderful description of her. I hope I hope that I right. can someday be that much of a nuisance that I can be remembered in that way. Yeah, you know what? Both these women, massive nuisances. Massive nuisances, yeah. Really ready to like fuck shit up. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could just entitle this Forgotten Feminist Faves, The Two Nuisances, but then no one would know what we're talking about. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. This I'm talking about Stormy because it's funny. I had actually already chosen her, but then we had a listener reach out and ask for for someone wow. to do her. And I messaged her back and I was like, get out of my brain. That's amazing. Um, so... I love it when you guys send us uh, people that you're interested in that you would love for us to cover and learn more about. So thank you so much to the person that sent that in to me. I don't remember your name off the top of my head. Um, so if you have anybody that you're really fascinated by and we haven't covered, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us at angry neighborhood feminist on Instagram and you can follow us there. We have a Twitter at Yamp Podcast. Y A N F podcast we have a facebook business and group page you can go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on our group page uh let's see you can also rate and review us on apple podcasts we really appreciate it and you will be featured on reviews day tuesday my friends and if you don't already please go ahead and listen to us on radio public it is a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit all right keegan with all of that being said we encourage you to To rage on. on Bye. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.